The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. Don't forget your umbrellas. It's raining squids. Welcome back to the Watchmen podcast. Today we're going to recap and review the third episode of the HBO series Watchmen. I'm James. With me as always is Ryan. Hey, Ryan. Hello, I am Ryan. This episode was entitled She Was Killed by Space Junk. It was directed by Stephen Williams and it was written by Lindelof and Lila Bayak. Stephen Williams was a, and is a, he is not past tense, very much alive. Stephen Williams is currently a uh, bouncing around director of television shows. He directed Vanishing Point episodes. He directed Trace Decay, a uh, Westworld episode, a, another show that we do another podcast for whenever it chooses to be on. He directed 26 episodes of Lost, Person of Interest, and he's an executive producer on Watchmen. And as he said, this was written by Lindelof and Lil Biak. I don't know how to say that last name for sure. She was a Leftovers writer slash story editor and a co-producer on Castle Rock, which is a Hulu show produced by Stephen King and J.J. Abrams. Uh, I just like that she was a Leftovers writer. Yeah, there's a lot of connections here. For some reason, like, so Watchmen is connected to The Leftovers, which is connected to, to Person of Interest, which is connected to Westworld. It's interesting. It's J.J. Abrams, I believe, is the connection, the exact connection between all of these things. Lila Bayak is a writer for the show Manhattan, The Leftovers, Castle Rock. She's also the producer of Castle Rock. And I don't know what that is. Is that a book? You're, you're more learned than I am. Yeah, so I was reading a book, and it told me that Castle Rock is a TV show. It's, uh, it's based on... Like Stephen King short stories that are all interconnected. It sounds interesting. I don't have Hulu. Sorry, guys. I do have Hulu. I may or may not watch it. There are just so many things to watch, man. Yeah, too much. Too much to watch. It's a spoil of riches. In TV's second golden age. I think it might just be like one long stream of golden age. So the episode begins with new character, well, new old character, Lori Blake. Silk Spectre 2 from the original Watchmen comics, played by... That's where you jump in and say... Oh, well, this time I wasn't ready. I <laughs> didn't know we were going to me. I am... By Gene Smart. Oh my god. She's like You knew the whole time. Gene Smart. She's a really famous character actor who's extremely prolific. She was on 24. She was on the ABC sitcom Samantha Who. She's been in a ton of movies. She's in I Heart Huckabees, which I love that movie. The Accountant, more recently. A Simple Favor, another good one. If you follow or believe the Zack Snyder movie to be canon at all, she's Malin Ackerman, the lady who wears yellow all the time. Okay. Yeah. Well, she's the same character, right? Right. <laughs> uh, but I'm talking about the actress, Jean Smart. 
I'm aware of that. <laughs> and she was also in uh, uh, one of the seasons of Fargo, the second season, I think. She, one of the Gerharts. That's another thing. Too many things. You didn't see Fargo. Sounds great. Oh, it's really good. A lot of people good. says Fargo's good. Yeah, see, you, you just told me it's, it's good. I bet it is good. It's too many things. She's in some kind of phone booth from which you can call... Well, not exactly call. You can send a message to Mars where, assumably, Dr. Manhattan will hear it. It seems like a scam, although it is, or it has a very professional name, the Blue Booth Network. It is a network run by the Treo Foundation that we'll hear more about later, but and maybe perhaps meet Lady Treo as an actual character, the lady who is getting all the newspapers in the previous episode, next time and we'll see uh, what she has to do with any of this but they own the blue booth network but again it seems like it probably doesn't work she doesn't even believe it works right so what do you do you put in a coin you pick up the receiver and you talk to god who you don't have any actual proof is listening and who will not get back to you and so this is a pretty clear allegory for prayer basically but also it's Lori blake talking to her ex we're cutting between that scene and every other scene for the rest of the show. And the next thing we see is the FBI staging a bank robbery in order to lure out this uh, this Batman-esque superhero who came, comes to stop the bank robbery. But then basically it turns out everyone in the scenario, the teller, the hostage, uh, the bystanders are all members of the FBI. And his name is Mr. Shadow. He's just Batman. He even has the Batman voice. He looks exactly like Batman. He has body armor like Batman, which is useful because Lori Blake is about to unload clips on this mofo. Yeah, one agent goes to tackle him and he gets away and it looks like he's going to make it to the door when she shoots him like five times in the back. A newspaper in this scene says Grisham to retire from the Supreme Court. So I believe that in this alternate reality, author John Grisham is a Supreme Court justice. Interesting, yeah. Celebrities are in every facet of American government instead of just the presidency, like in our time. Yeah, so one of the agents after the uh, suspect is apprehended asks, oh, how did you know his body armor would be strong enough to protect him from the bullets? And she just doesn't answer. So clearly, Lori is now embracing the comedian side of her parentage more than she is the, the sort of hokey, non-lethal, silk specter side of her lineage. And perhaps Mr. Shadow somehow reminded her of Night Owl 2, a, a, a scorned relationship, I believe. A, 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 you, you would know more than me being a comic book connoisseur, but maybe a man in body armor, she sees it and she's like, oh, well, I don't even know who you are, but you're, I'm, you're, getting, you're getting popped. I'm going to pop you with bullets. So at the very end of the Watchmen comic book, I believe it's the same in the movie, Laurie and Night Owl are together, and it seems like, you know, they're going to live happily ever after, but that's not how it played out in the show. No, not at all. As she is putting the handcuffs on said Mr. Shadow, and he's getting into the ambulance, uh, the crowd outside is, is not too happy. They ask why that she's arresting a hero. And she says, he's not a hero. He's a fucking joke. So we get her general feelings on heroes. And then it cuts to 
her in her own apartment and she puts on a song by Devo and uh, on the same album, I believe, there is a song called Space Junk. So they're just tying stuff in. They're, they're, they're tying it. They're making knots like Boy Scouts. I love that in this reality, people becoming superheroes is such a problem that they need to have an FBI task force to stop people from doing it. And one of the leaders of said task force used to be a masked vigilante in Silk Spectre. At home, Lori has a pet caged owl, which she feeds a live mouse to. Then a knock on the door comes from Senator Keene, who is asking her to go to Oklahoma to investigate the death of his friend Judd. And if she does, he intimates that he will, as president, assuming he becomes president, he will grant a presidential pardon to Night Owl 2, who is apparently in jail. She was also arrested, Lori Blake, that is, in 1995, along with Night Owl 2, But Night Owl wasn't so lucky and is still in jail. And for some reason, she is not out of jail and now works on a task force for the FBI to take down mass vigilantes. So two very different paths that hopefully we'll find out how that occurred at a later time. I have a theory. So I I think basically, you know, she was willing to turn to flip on the superheroes and maybe the mentality is, oh, you know, it takes a thief to catch a thief. So we want you two superheroes to, to, to join us in hunting down the other ones. And probably night owl was like, no, I won't do that. I'm against it. And Laurie's like, whatever. My dad used to kill superheroes for money. So you're saying it's a bit of Leonardo DiCaprio. Catch me if you can situation could be, or it, m- more like Leonardo DiCaprio in the departed situation. Really? It's basically just like, Lori Blake is Leonardo DiCaprio. Yeah, I think I think that's pretty clear to everyone. I can see Lori Blake behind Kate Winslet looking off into the distance on the bow of a ship thinking to himself, this is the rest of my life. So at the FBI headquarters, they're having a briefing room. Oh, wait, wait, okay, okay. wait, wait. I guess got one thing, man. There was a briefcase with a blue light in it. The, uh, the combo was 666. The same combo from Pulp Fiction... And out of that briefcase in Pulp Fiction came a gold light. And in this one, it came a blue light. And later, we're going to find out what that blue light is. Right. It's also the number of the beast. That is correct. You're not wrong. At FBI headquarters, they're having a briefing about the 7th Cavalry. There's a skinny boy, Pete, running the projector. And he puts up some images of Rojak's journal, which the director gets upset about. And he's like, the 80s are over. And I don't love the 80s. Get Rojak out of here. I am anti-80s. It's also sort of like Damon Lindelof exclaiming, like, does Rorschach matter? Not so much to this storyline, although he does obviously matter contextually. Right. And everyone's quoting Rorschach's journal, so apparently they've all read it. Yeah. it's And obviously, the Rorschach's journal is being used a bit like Moncomf is in the actual United States that has 50 states. P.S. And by the way, there is a companion piece to this show and it's called PDpedia. It's on the HBO website. And it's a blog written by Dale Petey, the lengthy man who is working the projector and gets yelled at. He, on that PDpedia, describes Dan Dryberg, apparently the name of Night Owl, is in prison. And this is also how we know Laurie was arrested with him in 95. And again, the senator has said that he would help them both. Because she still hasn't have a full pardon either. 
The director then goes on to introduce everyone to Lori, saying this is going to be our team leader on this, you know, dead sheriff investigation. And Lori's like, no, nah, I'm cool. I don't need any of you guys. Uh, I'll just go by myself, but I'll take the kid that you berated with me because he seems plucky. I like the cut of his jib. That's the vibe I got. Yeah, she basically went from a, I work alone, to I'll take the guy who is of no risk to me, who is completely malleable, and I can bend incredibly to my will. I, I'll take I'll take Gumby. Give me Gumby, FBI agent. On the jet to Tulsa, they see something called the Millennium Clock, which is a monument built by, as what was her name, Lady True? Yeah, Lady Trio, True. It's like T-R-I-E-U. Or I believe it's Lady True, a person we have not met yet. When she bought Adrian Veidt's company, she built this monument basically to celebrate a, a change of leadership. And she quoted the famous poem Ozymandias, which is another name for Ramses II, which is the character that Adrian, not the character, the real person that Adrian Veidt takes his superhero name from. She, at the groundbreaking, says, look on my works, ye mighty and despair. So questions for the future. Does Lady True have anything to do with whatever is currently happening to Ozzy, which is a bit of a mystery, a bit of a few mysteries all wrapped up into one. And what does Dr. Manhattan, Ozzy and Lady True have to do with each other? Right. And everyone seems to, uh, in the Watchmen verse, misunderstand the point of that poem, Ozymandias. Everyone should give it a read online. It's a nice little poem. It's not about like, look at me. I'm so awesome. Everything I've done is going to last forever. Because the statue of Ozymandias, where where you read those words, look upon my works, you mighty in despair, are just his feet, and the rest of the statue is gone. So it's like, yeah, you can do awesome things in your life, but then you're going to die. And everything you've done is going to be destroyed by the march of time. Oh, God. Lollipops and rainbows. That theory. I love that one to death. After this, we see them both on, and by them I mean... Petey and Lori on a helicopter to assumably Tulsa, where Petey describes to her that he is slightly valuable, according to him. He's a historian. He wrote his thesis on the police strike in 77 in D.C., the one where her and Dr. Manhattan were at. And, you know, he so he's, he's not he's not Gumby, although I think I'm going to call him Gumby. Yeah, weird, weird life trajectory. Yeah, I'm going to get a PhD in history, apparently by like the age of 24, because this guy seems hella young. And and then I'm going to join the FBI. And they're going to be like, well, have you studied criminology? No, but I got a PhD in the 80s, about 80s history. I know all about exactly what happened in the past. Is that valuable to you? He, she, uh, he asks her questions about the Minutemen, I believe, right? That this is what the thing that she was in with her friends. Right, and she doesn't want to talk about it. She's basically accusing him of being a fanboy. And he's like, no, I'm not a fanboy. I'm a very serious FBI historian, which is a, which is a thing now. He's Gumby historian. And she knew Adrian Veidt. Eventually, she tells him after he explains himself. And she doesn't like him at all. I believe in the comic she tried to shoot Adrian Veidt, but he caught the bullet, right? Yeah, he did. He's, he can do the you know the the stage magician trick of catching a bullet, but he actually does it in real life. 
Is that his only actual superpower outside of being very smart? I mean, he's also just like an incredible fighter, and and he's got all these weird inventions as well. This then cuts to back to the telephone booth, where she's describing in a monologue the next hero, and it's the smartest man in the world. We're led to believe that she is talking about Ozymandias. He saved humanity. He dropped a giant alien squid on New York. Everyone was so afraid of it that they all stopped the wars because they were like, you know, what? How? Why should we war? What about the squid? God asks, how many people did he kill? And he was like, mm, about three million, give or take. And God, calling him a monster, sends him straight to hell. Right. And he's already sent Night Owl to hell for being a pussy. That was the first part of the joke. Right. So, so far, dope joke. After investigating the crime scene, Petey and Lori head over to the police headquarters, which is meant to look like an abandoned factory. Inside, members of the 7th Cavalry are being processed and brutalized, probably the same dudes who were apprehended at the trailer park, and the, they're, they're taking their turns in the pod and either being sent home or sent for further questioning, I guess. Inside the pod, Lori and the Looking Glass talk about w- the situation, what's been going on, how the pod works, actually. She's the racist detector. Yeah, she renames it the racist detector. I believe, as does she, that it is more accurate. At the crime scene under the tree, Petey takes a picture of the wheelchair tracks. Before she goes to the warehouse, she also stops by Judd's house, which will inform a scene later. And you're right, she gets to the warehouse. Red Scare is there with Pirate Jenny, just like about to take a dude in. And Lori Blake says to the guy who is blindfolded, Sir, are your rights being violated? And she's like, psych, I don't care. <laughs> like she's some sort of comedian. She wants to speak with Angela, but the Looking Glass says that she has taken a personal day to write the eulogy for Judd's funeral, which is only in a few hours. She then claims she must go get something darker, inferring that she going to the funeral. At the funeral, she does meet up with Angela and her family. And she, you know, she makes the quip from the trailers. How do you tell the difference between a vigilante and a masked cop? You can't. So they're not off to a great start, friendship-wise. No, friendship so far, very aggressive. She's kind of flirting with Angela's husband. Again, a little aggressive to do within the first 10 seconds. Prior to going to this graveyard... She drops by her motel one more time. It's called the Black Freighter, which is a pirate comic in the novel. And you see that all cars have charging ports. And there are these buildings in the background that I'm not sure what they're for. They maybe are just like to make power or not. As she puts a gun in her ankle, with, with which only cool people do, James. Only cool people have ankle guns. And she has a bunch of files of the Tulsa PD. As you said, she goes to the graveyard where she's about to get an altercation after altercation. The graveyard's name is Tartarus Acres, and Tartarus is a Greek mythology thing. I'm very smart. Tartarus is the deep abyss that is used as a dungeon of torment and suffering for the wicked and the prison for the Titans. So, pretty intense. Judy gives a brief eulogy and then invites Angela to do the same. Angela reads a letter left behind by Judd, which he asked her to read at his funeral, and it's got this little ditty in it that she starts singing, Lori starts a slow clap, it's very emotional, and then a member of the 7th Cavalry emerges from a tomb with a bomb strapped to his chest, and he wants to kidnap Senator Keene. 
Oh, that that always happens, James. Every time, you know, every every funeral I go to, it ends the exact same way with a attempted suicide bombing. It's so annoying. Anyway, is that too much? I don't know. Anyway, as they're going into the graveyard, the FBI has to give away their firearms. People outside the crowd asks, what are the FBI doing here? Seems pretty intense for the FBI to be here. Over Judd's casket is the new flag with one more star, indicating and further telling us that Vietnam is a state in this new alternate reality. Angela does sing a song. It's the last roundup by Burl Ives. And the Seventh Cavalry guy, he Shawshanked through like a mausoleum to get up and be able to try to blow up these people. It's it's sheer effort. He claims that the bomb is is connected to his heartbeat so that if his heart stops, it'll explode. And Lori doesn't believe this. She's like, oh, this is a bunch of bullshit. So she just headshots him immediately. Turns out this is the one suicide bomber who is like good at plans and has followed through and he actually put it on his heart. So he starts ticking down. I'm not sure why he doesn't blow up immediately, perhaps for some plot armor, but is what it is. Prior to this, he asks for Keen as a... A race trader. Yeah, he calls him a race trader, and he says, come with me or I'll hurt everybody else. So he's, like, trying to take Keen away. But it feels like something Keen, like, already knows about. I don't know. I feel this Keen is a uh, is a shady character. So admittedly, I might not be up on my white supremacist Nazi terminology, but I always thought that a race trader was someone who married outside of their race. So maybe that's the case with Keen. Or, I don't know, maybe he could, be, he could be calling him that for any reason. I have a keen theory that will go in at the end. This is a, is what it is a tease. Anywho, we then, you know, oh, we don't actually cut away. What actually happens is Angela pushes Judd's body within the casket. Well, she pushes the suicide bomber into... Yeah, and then Judd on top of him. And, you know, then everything explodes, which is a bummer for Lori Blake because she really wanted to give Judd a tox screen, a thing that she definitely can't do now because he exploded. That was an excellent scene. I, it's interesting that we are kind of paralleling the Watchmen comic a bit. It's sort of like The Force Awakens, like a soft reboot is what people are calling it. I don't know if that terminology makes any sense, but this it is kind of paralleling the comic. We get, you know, the death of one of the main characters right away and then we find his secret outfit in the closet then we go to his funeral so so far things are kind of lining up story-wise and i wonder if this story is also going to end with some kind of unstoppable cataclysmic event we can only hope and also it is going a little quicker now in episode three prior to this we were reading a possible rumored report that it was just a one season miniseries to which we were both like, nah, dude, come on, <laughs> stop it. And now that it, this episode is is picking up what feels like plot speed, and honestly, I just don't want it to be true. So, you know, don't make it true. <laughs> come on. So we get into the bizarre scene of Adrian Veidt doing whatever it is he's doing, wherever it is he is. He's inventing a kind of makeshift space suit which he then tests on the new mr phillips and uh it does not work he comes back to earth frozen and dead right if it is earth it might not be earth we when we get to ozzy's house we see the purple mask first desmond decker and the aces the song are doing the song israelite is playing 
And as you said, he gets flung somewhere. He's connected to a rope. So wherever Mr. Phillips is going, whatever Adrian Veidt is testing out, he's trying to himself escape from something. And it's going perhaps upwards because, you know, he is basically trebucheting Mr. Phillips somewhere. And wherever he sent Mr. Phillips, it went really, really poorly, obviously. Yeah, he decides the suit needs more insulation, so he goes to kill a buffalo, or maybe it's a bison, I have a hard time telling the difference, with a bow and arrow, and he is stopped by a warning shot from the Game Warden. There's a theory on the internet that says the Game Warden is the first original Mr. Phillips, and all the clones are being provided to Adrian Veidt by Dr. Manhattan and Dr. Manhattan has him in like a biodome on Mars that is a prison for Ozymandias for what he did. And the shot we see, I think in the first episode of Ozymandias destroying a dust castle on Mars is in the future and it's Adrian Veidt's actual castle. He goes home where he is read a letter from the game warden warning him to stop trying to escape the confinement which they had agreed upon and telling him to follow the rules or he next time is going to be shot in the face. Yeah, straight in the face. As he walks in, Mr. Phillips and Miss Cruxshanks have a another cake for him, this time with three candles on it. In the second episode, it was two. In the first, it was one. That infers possibly that this is three years in and every time we see him anew, a year has passed wherever he is and he's trying and getting better are closer to being able to escape what is ostensibly a prison. And then Adrian Veidt comes back and says, to the typewriter, when the warden sends him a letter telling him of his grievances, he sends one back and he really, just to just burn him alive, James. He burns him alive with, with rhetoric. Yeah, he's spitting hot fire and he really just takes him down in this letter. He's saying, you know, your accusations are spurious and unfair. You should come say them to my face. And he ends it with your humble servant, the game warden. Oh, by the way, no, the game warden ends his letter, your humble servant, saying that he's he's the servant of Adrian Veidt, which is odd, although it does fit with the he's an, a Mr. Phillips. Well, I, I think that's just a fancy way to end a letter. That's like an old-timey way, like, your obedient servant... A dot burr, you know. A dot ham. Yeah, that's exactly what I was going to say, dude. We both made the same. We did it. Back on Earth, or or back in Tulsa at least, Lori is wrapping up her phone call to Dr. Manhattan. She's ending the joke. All the superheroes go to jail. Then there's a woman left, and she's the girl who threw the brick from the first failed joke, which lands and and kills God's head, and then God goes to hell too. Roll on snare drum. Good joke. Everybody laugh. Also quoting Rorschach's journal. Everybody's read that. It's like Catcher in the Rye. And, you know, her dad is the comedian, right? We've decided that. That's the thing we've decided. That's a that's a thing that is canon. So we know that. And badum as she says it, perhaps a, a callback to her father, the person who she's taken his last name. Back in the graveyard... Keen is doing an interview, a very political interview. He's just saying all the right things like he meant for this all to happen. He seems almost glad that it happened. He's glad that law enforcement was there and doing their jobs. You know, a.k.a. Blake killed that dude. In this interview, one of the 
people who was interviewing him asks if he can comment on the Russians building an intrinsic field generator, which is the same exact thing that made Dr. Manhattan, Dr. Manhattan. And he's like, I'm talking about the war. I don't do a good accent. I'm going to stop doing the accent immediately. I liked it. I'm talking about the war in Oklahoma and not the war in Russia. I don't remember the exact line, but this is, you have to admit, a perfect accent. Lori enters the tomb from which the 7th Cavalry member emerged, and she finds Angela in there wearing her night vision goggles, inspecting the crime scene. The tunnel only goes to right outside the cemetery, and... Lori then tries to intimidate. She rolls to intimidate Angela, saying, you know, I already know what's going on. I investigate masks. I eat heroes for breakfast. And Angela just gives her this kind of deadpan look and then does like a, ooh, I'm so scared, kind of an expression, and leaves without a word. Yeah, it was a great moment from Regina King. The last shot is framed in the goggles, the goggles that look like the Night Owl's goggles with Lori inside them. She can never escape the shadow of the Night Owl, perhaps. And Lori tells Angela that she knows quite a bit, right? She doesn't believe that she fainted when she went to Judd's house. She believes that Judd had a bust in a hidden compartment in his closet, a thing that she checks now because wasn't it her dad who had the same thing? That's right. And there wasn't anything on there. And we know it's on there. It was a KKK uniform, perhaps Judd's father, perhaps Judd's. And it's no longer there, inferring that Angela has taken it and hidden it to try to save a portion of Judd's honor if, in fact, he was in the KKK too. In the phone booth, Lori is saying goodbye to Dr. Manhattan. She's starting to get very emotional. She's saying, oh, the people down here think you give a shit, but I know you truly don't. She hits the 40-minute time limit, and it cuts her off, and apparently sends the message to Mars. We don't really know if it's going anywhere. And she gets out, and so we see a few things. Like, in her hotel room, she unlocks the briefcase, and inside is a giant chrome blue vibrator it's like dr manhattan's genitalia although come on you know if you've seen the movie he's not packing that much no it's pretty intense they perhaps have given him the benefit of the doubt but yeah it's a giant dr manhattan blue phallus and does this count in our hashtag dong watch 2019 i'm gonna count it two dongs in watchmen so far one metallic one on mr phillips but Both pretty good. She apparently doesn't want to use that thing anymore. Goes and knocks on historian Petey's door, Gumby Pete, and has intercourse with him while making him wear the mask that he brought. He was reading Warshak's journal prior to the intercourse. And then we port back to the blue telephone booth. So we know now that everything in the telephone booth has happened this night in the story. So we had multiple timelines in this episode. We might have... More than just two, if Adrian Veidt is, you know, leaping years every time we see him. We don't even know his exact timeline. But Petey got lucky, and then Lori, about to get not that lucky, but, oh my god, this next part. I like it. I like this part. Walking from the Dr. Manhattan phone booth, she is almost crushed when Angela's car, which floated up, was pulled in the sky by a magnet in last episode, falls from the sky and almost destroys Lori, but nearly misses her. But freaks her the fuck out. In the phone booth, Lori claims that it takes 40 seconds 
for one of these messages to get to Dr. Manhattan for him to listen to. And in the actual show, the car hits the ground exactly 40 seconds after the call was sent. Ooh. Thanks for the phone call. Here's a, here's a brand new car. It's Dr. Manhattan making a joke, dude. It's like his brick. So you were we were saying uh, prior to the podcast, it is Angela's car, so it could be the owl the ship, ship, right? That's what magnet. I assumed. But then, you know, as you said, Mars was glowing. Right. Mars was totes glowing, dog. So I don't know if it was thrown from Mars. That would be odd. But if I believe it was a Dr. Manhattan joke, he has a sense of humor now. Yeah, just another really great episode. I love where this show is going. I seriously can't point to a single scene that I thought was boring or or unnecessary. And I'm, I, I guess this is going to be one season, and that's sad. But I'd love to hear your theories, Ryan. Well, it is sad. The episode is titled She Was Killed by Space Junk, has multiple meetings. She was actually literally almost killed by Space Junk, the car from the sky. Uh, Dr. Manhattan's Space Junk killed her enthusiasm for normal phallus. She had to get a blue metallic phallus, although that didn't even work. Eventually, she needed Petey Gumby to satisfy her needs. And then three, the Devo song called Space Junk on the same CD that Lori was listening to. So yeah, I mean, my main theory, which is not a unique one, is that Adrian Veidt is on Mars and Dr. Manhattan is personally imprisoning him. Yeah, that could be. I, I, I'm. I, that's the only sort of Westworld aspect of the show is like, what the fuck is going on with Adrian Veidt? We're being kind of mind fucked. Maybe the game warden. I assume you know game as in what you are and are not allowed to hunt. But maybe it's a game in the context of like he's in some kind of weird game. I don't know. The game master. It's the Hunger Games, but only starring Jeremy Irons. I would break the show. Like, the show is two different shows, almost. And, assumably, multiple timelines. A thing that it has in common with Westworld. It's use of lots and lots of timelines, jumping back and forth, and not being incredibly clear about which one you're on. But, uh, it's two different shows. The first 40 minutes is one show set in Tulsa, Oklahoma. And then Adrian Veidt's parts are like a whole nother show. And honestly, I love both shows, but Adrian Veidt's shows are my favorite ones. Hey, we got a tweet to read this week. Oh, yeah. Oh, we got two. Damn. That's pretty. I'm honestly surprised. Right on. Let's do this. First one comes from Josh Lorian at Josh Lorian. Uh, great podcast. Ryan loves you. Lizzie DNA test comment. Oh, Ryan, loved your Lizzie DNA test comment, I guess is what they meant to say. It wasn't lost on me. It was lost on me, not lost on at Josh Lorian. It was lost on you. It was Lizzo. I just took a DNA test, turns out. I'm 100% that bitch. And I am, I guess. And there's no historical evidence on the contrary that I'm not that bitch. Then we got another one. Tone at Arain1019 says, Hey, informative podcast, but you and Ryan's lack of knowledge of Regina King's career is killing me. This is not a turnaround for her career. She literally won an Oscar this year. Fair. <laughs> James, I am willing to admit when I am wrong. Who sent that? Uh, at Arain1019. Tone. I would like to personally apologize to you about <laughs> Regina King. You know what? I'm going to put this on Ryan. Ryan's more the pop culture guy. He should have known this. He should have known who won the Oscars this year. I didn't watch the Oscars. I can't tell you who won Best Picture. 
Wow, throwing me under the Regina King bus. You and this tweeter both. My wife said she's seen if Beale Street can talk, and she said it's really good, so I'm going to give it a shot. Well, this is a great example of why you should tweet us if we're getting something wrong. Now I know never to disrespect Regina King ever again. And now you guys know it's incredibly easy to own Ryan and I, so get on Twitter and do it. Pretty free. Only need... Wait... How many Twitter characters can you do now in this newfangled universe? Somebody tweet that at us, all right? You know what? I'm going to go ahead and say the wrong thing. You can do 110. Two, six, 100 and... What? That's not... Well, now someone can be. tweet us and correct us and we can read it on the show. We are desperate from tweets, okay? We will take any and all criticism. Please. Please send more criticism. Also, I liked the first one, though. They were nice. All right, if you're just listening, it means a lot to us. Uh, we've got a, a huge bump in listeners for the Watchmen series. That's really cool. Stick with us, guys. Subscribe. We do something different all the time. If you want to go the extra mile, you can follow us on SoundCloud. You can follow me on Twitter at James Watches Men or at Ryan, Westworld Ryan. James Watches Men, still hashtag gold, still hashtag the best Twitter name all time. Subscribe to us on the Apple Podcast app or rate us. And Google Play and what else? Uh, Spotify. Spotify. Stitcher. We're all, you know, and tell your friends if they like Watchmen, if they like recaps. And join us next week for episode four. If you don't like my story, write your own. Directed by, I'm going to butcher this name, Andrish Perek. And written by David Lindelof and Crystal Henry. Well, you got Crystal Henry right. So that's pretty cool. That's pretty neat. That one was a that one was a gimme though, to be fair. I'm James and I'm Ryan. And this is the Oh god, I almost did oh, it. Oh, I was hoping you would. <laughs> oh, you were hoping I did it, but I stopped myself. This is a Watchmen podcast. There are a lot of them. Thank you so much for you actually being here listening to our specifically. We know you have your choice of 10,000 Watchmen podcasts and you're listening to ours and it means a lot. Literally, Craig Mazin, the dude who did the Chernobyl official podcast is doing an official podcast for Watchmen. I'm not saying go listen to it. Listen to this one first, obviously. Anyway, I'm Ryan, and this is the Watchmen podcast. Nailed it.